Zone 6. Smart nigga though. Wow. I got money that I saved and I'm back on road. Get my jewelry out to save, cause I'm back on road. Yeah. I still do these hoes the same when I'm back on road. If you wasn't there for me when I was all alone, then bitch don't expect no love when I'm back. This is Real Talk with Ben Tompkins. Oh man, you guys have no idea what that feels like. You have no idea what that feels like. I have been waiting six weeks to drop that. And I envisioned it, and I thought about what this day would be like, and it's finally here, and holy shit, we made it. What's good? I am Ben Tompkins. This is Real Talk. We are presented by Nobody Currently. We're hustling. These are the mixtape days. Enjoy them. And this is Uber Stories Part 21. So yeah, I got my car back. I uh, was able to recoup lost wages. I sought compensation. I argued my case. And I was able to get some losses back, so happy about that because, I mean, let's be honest, I missed out on three weeks of rides and three weeks of stories just on their part alone. I still had to wait for the car to get back and everything like that, but you know what? That's the past. That was then. This is now. Uh, what's happening now? Well, I started a TikTok account, so please go follow me on TikTok. I can't believe that I'm here either. I know. Uh, I feel pretty old because I was, you know, around when Vine was big, and now there's TikTok and the Gen Z generation, and they're just going fucking crazy with it. And uh, but I'm on there. I'm on there at Benny Tomp 18. And my girlfriend was telling me about Story Time. She's like, "Oh, this is really, really big Story Time," and I was like, "You know what?" Before TikTok was ever around, back when I was living in the Bay Area, I used to be on Snapchat taking videos of me driving, singing along to songs, doing different reactions in the car all the time, all the time. So I'm like, I was doing that before TikTok was a thing, okay? I made my bones when you were going out with cheerleaders. <laughs> Mo Green, everybody. Uh, but I'm like, dude, I, I should, I could totally be doing this, and this could be something that I'm doing between rides when something happens and I come on and tease a story that's going to be coming up on the next episode. Uh, that would be a great thing to do. I also thought for the people that are cool with it and down with it, I'd get little rider reactions or like rider, uh, just rider clips, you know, like those girls that wanted to be on the podcast. They were like, hey, record something. If that had been a TikTok, like there's no reason that it shouldn't be. You know what I mean? So for people that are like, I'm like, hey, do you want to make a TikTok? You want to be on the show? You want to be on TikTok? Some of them will probably be like, yeah, sure, let's do it. And, you know, if one person says something outrageous enough that makes it go viral or something like that, then then you never know. Then a bunch of people are finding me on an avenue and, and through a platform that I'm not on right now and I should be using. So, now I'm going to use it. I made a video just saying, hey guys, I have no idea what I'm doing. I've never, ever used TikTok before. It's kind of overwhelming when you're trying to actually make videos. Because it's one thing to be on TikTok and watch the videos, but then to actually be a content creator uh, is a totally different thing. And listen to me, like I'm some kind of a pro at it. I'm a content creator. like, uh, But I am, but I am, you know what I mean? So like, uh, players play. Um but yeah, so I'm like, okay, well, I, I should be doing this, and uh, I put a video up there, very first one, and used a few hashtags, and uh, I got to tell you, I was told, you know, the thing ended up getting like 
close to 600 views in the first few days, I'm told it's pretty good. I, I don't know. Uh, I think that's pretty good. I mean, 600 people viewing something, that's, that's pretty decent. For my first one ever, I popped my cherry with 600 people. I'll take that, all right? I'll take that. And uh, then I put up the show trailer. If you haven't heard that, it's, you know, like movie trailers, podcasts have trailers as well. That's how eventually I'm going to send that to people and um, sell it. That'll be what sells this show to somewhere like a Spotify or a Wondery or iHeart Media because they they host their own podcasts as well. So it's just one of those things. But I put the trailers up there, and uh, I'll be putting videos up there as I go along. So sometimes there'll be the audiograms. Sometimes it'll be me and a writer. Uh, sometimes it'll be me driving around with some random thoughts or story time. And that's just something that I should be doing. And uh, yeah, so it, it's kind of fun. Like I said, kind of overwhelming. I don't really know all of the different things uh, to, to do to make the videos, but it's good stuff. So I'm learning as we go and uh, come along for this ride. I also started a thread on Twitter of writer quotes that I will be adding to as we go along because there were uh, there was one quote that stuck out that uh, it actually didn't end up making it into a story because it really, outside of the context of this small part of the conversation, didn't really have much else to kind of report on, right? And the quote was, in Detroit, you only get killed like that for two reasons. You rob somebody or you killed somebody yourself. And I was speaking with this woman who had moved down from Detroit and she was just kind of telling me why she left and, you know, uh, murders that she had witnessed and, and she was speaking about her brother when she said that quote. And I just thought, you know, these are out of context. They're like really, really good quotes. They're really strong quotes. I have another quote that I put up yesterday that is... Uh, included in one of the stories that I'll get to later today in this episode. But uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm just kind of like doing different stuff to help grow the show, help build the show. And you can also help me by leaving me a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. That really helps. That really, really helps. So please, it takes literally two seconds. And I just want to thank everybody that has done that already. They are very positive. They're very encouraging. Uh, I, I overwhelm and I swell with kind of pride and emotion when I read that stuff because it's like, thank you. Like, you don't know how much that helps and how much... Uh, positivity that gives me and and that gas that I can draw from when I need to keep going. So that stuff helps. Please, it takes two seconds. Just rating and a review. Write a little review. It could be anything. A story that you like, an interview that you like, um, anything, you know? Hey, I like the concept. Hey, I like this guy. Uh, just, just whatever you want to say, but please say it, you know? Please say it. It takes two seconds and it would really help me out. Uh, also, you can follow along at BennyTomp18 on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok now. Okay, I can't believe I'm doing this. I can't believe I'm on TikTok. It seems like such a younger kid thing, but like, hey, here we are, all right? I'm Steve Buscemi with the fucking peace signs up and the little hat and the gray hoodie. I mean, that's me right now, you know? That's what I feel like when there's like 17, 16, 14-year-olds on this. What the fuck, man? Uh... At Real Talk W Benny T on Facebook will get you to the show page, and that is where I post a lot of the stuff. That's where I'll also be posting uh, different interviews and and different kind of stuff like that. So that's the Facebook page for the show. Follow along there. Uh, you can also leave a rating 
on that page, and that would also help me out. So, yeah, a couple ways to follow along. We're on Spotify. We're on SoundCloud. Um, so there you go, man. If you have uh, enjoyed what we're what we're doing and where we're going, and and you like this, you fuck with this, then then let me know. Then let me know, and that really helps me out. So these are the mixtape days, man. Enjoy them. And I know that uh, eventually, I, I really believe, I've been telling people this lately, I believe that it's like the Field of Dreams thing. If you build it, they will come. So if the content is good and uh, it, it's, it can stand on its own, then eventually uh, it just takes time for this stuff to kind of get big and blow up and you never know what's going to go viral or what's going to be the one that um, ends up being shared a lot, but... I know that if I just continue to keep my head down, grind for it, and continue building this thing, then one day I'm going to get my deal, and we'll be dropping Grammy winners, but for now, I'm running the streets, and these are the mixtape days, so enjoy them. Today's stories include First Ride Back. Oh, man, it was a good one. It was a really good one. It was a really good one. Dude was a straight hustler, out here grinding, and then about halfway through as we're talking, I'm starting to piece all of these things together. I'm like, hold up, hold up. Are you current NBA All-Stars brother? Are you related to this guy? He's like, yep, I'm his older brother. So that's how I kicked off this revenge tour. That was a really, really good ride. It was my only ride of the day because it was the snowstorm day. This was last Wednesday, and it was a long ride. So I was at that point like, all right, well, I got to dip back home because this snowstorm's going to hit. Ended up being, I can't I can't remember a time that it snowed that, uh, that much in Louisville. I mean, I know I was gone for several years, but I just, I, I remember it snowing a lot when I was a kid and maybe just, I, I just instinctively, I think we do that. Uh, we, we just tend to like have these honeymoon nostalgic phases in our brain where it's like, oh, it snowed way more as a kid, but in reality, it probably didn't. I just remembered it more because it, I don't know, kids love snow days. Uh, but uh, yeah, I don't know. It, it snowed a lot here last Wednesday and Thursday, and then it was like gone the next day or, or like two days later. But anyways, I digress. The next story is called The Lucky One, about a guy who lost but really won and was really lucky to do so. After that, best rapper alive, a dude who claims that his son is the second best rapper to come out of the city. Who's number one? Him, of course. Then we got great parenting. This is the most savage parenting hack I have ever heard. This is amazing. Top notch. My hat goes off to this woman. And then we'll wrap things up, not necessarily with a positive ending. You guys know that I usually like to end things kind of on a good note, a positive note, something feel good. Okay, but um, this is the realest ride that I had this past week. And honestly, one of the realest quotes that I have ever heard doing this. Okay, I've been doing this seven or eight months now, and this was one of the most sobering quotes that you're ever going to hear in your life because it just makes you go, whoa, whoa, I get it, like fuck, that's heavy, and it is, so we'll get to that later, that's how we're going to end, um, you know, the, the thing is, is this is a volume game, this is a numbers game, so the more rides that I do in a given week are going to yield the more stories that I get. And out of that abundance of stories, that will let me pick the five best stories to come on. So I have good stories this week, next week, 
I'll probably have even better stories. And that's just how it goes. But I'm excited for this week, and I am glad that you guys are back. I am so thankful to be out on road. And I miss my people, you know? I miss my people. I'm back in the streets. Gucci Mane said, can't eat, can't sleep, man. I miss these streets. Muhammad Ali and the streets miss me. That's me. Louisville's greatest. Muhammad Ali, it all ties in. I fucking love it. But before we get into these stories, I want to plug my man Tyler Pope for a minute. Pope has been a longtime friend. He owns a barbershop right on UofL's campus. It's called Fades on Fourth. And my man Pope is building a business. And if you go down there and tell him Benny T sent you, he's going to hook you up with the Supreme Service Package. It's valued at about 60 bucks. And if you mention my name, mention Benny T, he's going to give it to you for 35 Check out his work on the gram at Fades on Fourth 502. Fades with a Z, all right? Fades on Fourth 502. So you can see the artwork and the attention to detail by my mans. I'm calling him the godfather of the fade, all right? Call and make an appointment or by using the Booksy app. That's where you can see his schedule and book your appointment and get your head game right. Get your head game right. Fades on Fourth, support local businesses. Pull up for the homie and tell him Benny T sent you, and he's going to get you right. All right, baby. And now, without further ado, let's jump into these stories. First ride back. So last Wednesday was my very first ride back. It was my very first ride back from a long hiatus. And I turned the app on. I drove around the city until I got a request, and it was uh, at the airport. So drive to the airport, pick up my man. His name is Antonio. I got his permission to use his real name here, and you'll see why as I go through the story. But uh, Antonio hops in, and I asked, where are you coming from? Uh, I feel like, where haven't I been? From here, but I live in Minnesota. I'm coming from Miami, Atlanta, Minnesota, and New York. Damn, what's got you traveling so much? Work. I work in the sports business, so I lived in San Francisco prior to Minnesota. Me too. Yeah? Where at? Well, I was actually in San Jose, but I lived there for like three years. Nice. Yeah, I was actually in San Fran for like 15 months, so not there too long. So we talked about that for a minute, and, you know, I always struggle with this because as new listeners come on, you know, it's like you have to play the hits. I have to kind of like break this down for new people, and I end up breaking this down for uh, people a lot when I meet them or we're talking and because I, I draw from my own personal experiences, right? But I'm sure some of you listening are probably like, oh, man, we've heard this part of it, you know, but uh, look... It, it, it's still going to come up, and I'm still going to tell that story. So just roll your eyes and wait 60 seconds, and I'll be through it, okay? But uh, yeah, kind of talked about living out there with him and doing all that whole thing. And I was like, after we were talking about that for a minute, I was like, so wait, hold up. How did you get into sports business management? Because that's really interesting to me. He said, uh, well, I went to school at NKU, and I used to go up to Ohio State quite a bit go to the football games, hang out, whatever. And my junior year of college, it was the first year that they did the college football playoff and Ohio State won it. And I was at a lot of games and there was a guy that I met that worked at Nike. He ran Nike's basketball operations on the West Coast. He's from Ohio, big time Ohio State fan. And he knew people that I knew. And once I knew who he was, I expressed that I was interested in doing an internship with Nike 
And that was like a year and a half into the making because I guess he really didn't believe me at first. But the summer going into my senior year, he told me, come out. You can come out for the summer. I'm not paying you anything, but I'll give you an internship for the summer. So I did that for the whole summer. Slept on a friend's couch interning at Nike. He ended up giving me a full-time position my senior year that I got paid for. So I stayed out there, stayed in LA for like two years. And then once I left, transitioning out of that, it just kind of rolled into it. I just kind of rolled into it. People became friends coming out of Ohio State. They were athletes. And I had interned at a sports agency my sophomore year. And it just kind of happened. Damn, that's dope. That's hella dope, dude. Yeah, appreciate it. Yeah, my mom actually has my goals from when I was a kid. And interning at Nike was the top of the list. So I showed him that. And that summer, he took a leap and gave me the opportunity. Man, that's fucking awesome. And look what you did with it. You knocked it out of the park. You took that and you parlayed that into an opportunity. For sure. And he's like a true mentor of mine. Been at Nike for 35 years and said he runs the whole West Coast. And that Nike internship on my resume spoke to other companies that I've been able to get associated with. And I'm in sports now. I might not be in sports in the next 10 years, but that opened a lot of doors for me right there. I said, I, I did something pretty similar. And I, I went into the story of flying out there, taking Ubers to and from my job interview, getting the offer in the room, calling my mom from the hotel like, hey, mom, I got it. Now I got to move out here. Finding a room for rent off of Craigslist, paying what I paid for a room. And he had mentioned doing the couch surfing thing, right? And I'm like, dude, that's really what you just got to do when you make a move like that. And people who are like 10 to 15 years older than us, couch surfing was really a way of life. People would post these things on message boards and I think there was I think during the dot com boom there was like a couch surfing website I'm pretty sure and they would be like hey come stay with us um, and that was like a way that was literally like how people moved about the country was finding these couch surf and that sounds like kind of crazy it, it was it was big in Europe too um, it sounds kind of crazy to some people sure because um, you think like you know, like the Airbnb concept is fine but there aren't people that are still going to be living there while you're there, right? This is like the Airbnb without the privacy. So you're literally just living on somebody's couch. But that's how a lot of people moved about the country and, and the world. And it was really cheap. And I think it's it's kind of lost some steam and momentum. And obviously, there's a bunch of weird shit that could potentially happen if you're a guy or a girl in that situation. And um, I, I don't think it's as popular now, like hitchhiking, like that's another one of those things, you know, like people used to, that's, that was a way of life. Hitchhiking was a lifestyle. And, um, I actually know somebody that lived in Kentucky, moved out of Kentucky when him and his dad kind of went through this thing and he hitchhiked across the country and it was just something that you did. You didn't think twice about. Um, and, uh, it, it's just, it's just, it's funny that to imagine, you know, just imagine, just imagine for a second. But living on somebody's couch uh, is is a hell of an experience, and it can be. And especially, like, think about that. He goes out to live on these on this couch for a couple of months, interning. That's that takes courage. That takes a fucking hustler's ambition that not a lot of people have. And uh, he said, "Yeah, man, it taught me that. Well, first of all, it humbles the fuck out of you, and then second of all, 
it's a level of grind because no one wants to be sleeping on someone's couch, especially when you're 21, 22, you got some girlfriends or whatever. You don't want to be like, yeah, I'm sleeping on my friend's couch. And I said, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You pull her back to the crib. She's like, is this it? He's like, is this it? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's that's not working too well for me, dog. But that puts a different type of fire under you. So I did that for two months in LA, did it for the summer. Then the end of the summer, he gave me the position. I found a spot. I paid 2200 for a room and a half kitchen, two stovetops. That's it. Not even four, just two stovetops. I said, you get a shelf or two in the cabinet? Like, what are we working with here? He said, yeah, that's it, though. That's it. And most of my stuff, it was still in the suitcase. Like, I had no closet space. Had to leave all the shoes at home, huh? Yeah, man, yeah. And I wear size 13, so you fit three pairs in a suitcase, you already going to need another suitcase. (laughs) So on the business side of things, are you trying to get into managing clients like an agent or or what? Yeah, so on the NBA side of things, you can only take your agent test once a year. So you can only do it in January, and I missed that deadline this year. So this upcoming year, I just got to focus on preparing myself for that test. Like that's, that's, that's really my big goal right now. In Kentucky, from an athletic standpoint, from a basketball standpoint, is really starting to be more so on the map. Especially in the last few years, you've had some really talented dudes come out of here, and there's even more on the way. So I'm thinking about creating an agency that's more focused towards the Midwest. I think there'd definitely be some opportunities there. So then we started talking about where we both went to high school because he was he mentioned he was from here. So I'm like, where'd you go to school? And then he asked where I went to school. I said North Oldham. He said, ah, okay, okay, yeah, they got a they got a really young coach there. I can't think of his name. I said David Levitch. He said, yeah, 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 okay, yeah. I said, yeah, I've been friends with him a long time. He said, yeah, okay. Well, if you speak to him, tell him Antonio Russell. He'll definitely know who I am. All right, here's hint number one, Antonio Russell. All right, we spent like 10 more minutes talking about ball, who we played with, do you know this coach or do you know this guy, and I'm realizing that we know a lot of the same people, and I asked if he played, and he said, yeah, he played basketball at Central, hint number two, Uh, had a full academic and athletic scholarship to NKU, but didn't want to play after he got done with school. And I was like, were you just burnt out or what? He said, yeah, yeah. The coach I played for, he was tough, man. Hell of a coach, but he was tough. And after that, I was just kind of done with it, you know. But, hey, I I can't even stunt, man. He's coached some great players, man. Rondo back in the day, D'Angelo Russell. All right. And now, at this point, I'm thinking, okay, hold up, hold up, hold up. Wait a minute. He mentioned Ohio State multiple times, and I know that's where D'Angelo played. He said he lives in Minnesota, and I know that D'Angelo plays for the Timberwolves. And he said that his last name was Russell. So I said, yo, this might be a stupid question, but are you related to D'Angelo? Older brother. Really? Yep. I'm his older brother. Nice. That's cool, man. Yeah, so that kind of helped me out with the Nike stuff, too, so... I said, yeah, I mean, look, like people have opportunities and you make the most out of what you're given, you know, and you break it down into like, like a privilege thing, right? Like think about me, white privilege. It's, it's like 
that might get me more opportunities in some areas, but it's on me to make the most of it with what I can and give back to people and do right by people and make the most out of what I got to work with. He's like, for sure. And the same thing with you is like, you have a brother, and I'm sure that there's people in the industry that would be like, man, fuck him. He don't know shit. His brother got him that. Nepotism. And it's like, no, 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 no. You got that because you're a hustler and because you're qualified and you're going to make the most out of it. For sure, man. Hey, that's the best way to put it right there. That's the best way to put it. This is what I do all day, man. That's real talk right there. (laughs) I said that. And of course, I plugged the show, and we still had like another 10 minutes on the ride, so we just chopped it up, and I said, hey, I would love to have you on the show. I think it would be really cool to ask you about a bunch of sports business stuff. Um, I'm always interested in that. Jerry Maguire is one of my favorite movies ever. Uh, Entrepreneurship, we could talk about that. Experiences and life lessons. If you're interested, let's do it. And he was like, yeah, yeah, bet. All right, I'm only here for a couple days, but if not this time... I'll be back and would definitely do it. I said, hey, we can always do Zoom, man, too. All right, for sure. So that may or may not happen, okay? I hope that it does. And we got linked up on Instagram, so I'll let you know. Uh, But that was my very first ride back. And it was just about 30, 35 minutes just chilling with this dude. He was hella cool. And this is Wednesday, right? So I picked him up around like by the time I'm finishing, this it's 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 about 1:30, 1:35 on Wednesday afternoon. And the snowstorm was being talked about hitting around 3 p.m. on Wednesday. And I I was like, at this point, you know, I could drive back into the city. I'm probably I'm so far out of uh like where he lived, right? And the house was sick. Uh two cars in the driveway and he has a clicker and as soon as he opens up the garage I'm looking at like a brand new looking Rolls Royce pointed right at me there's another car in there and I'm like damn that's dope that is dope um but it was so far secluded and and kind of in this private place that now I'm like dude it's going to take me at least 15 minutes to even get back into kind of like the metro area where I might get a ride request. So I'm going to drive 15 minutes back in and hope to get something. and uh, Or I could drive 30 minutes to get home and be safe and be smart. And I really didn't want to, <laughs> because I had started so good, because that ride was so good, I didn't want to like do another ride right after that just to fit one in before I bolted home at three um, and then have it potentially like not live up to that because that was really hard. To, that was like that was going to be a really ride. That was going to be a really hard ride to top. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to just quit while I'm ahead. That was a good one. The snowstorm's coming and then it hit and it dumped snow. It was kind of fun watching it and it felt like a, it felt like kind of a snow day. Like I was home from work early and I'm watching the snow come down and uh, that was pretty cool. But didn't drive at all on Thursday because of the snow. Uh, did drive over the weekend and uh, I've got some of the stories coming up in a minute. But that was a really good first ride back and I am thankful to be back on road. The lucky one. So this is Friday. This is the first ride of the day, and we'll call him Al, all right? We'll call him Al. Al hops in and says he has the day off, and he's headed to go donate some of his hard-earned money to the Derby City Gaming Company. I said, you fucking degenerate. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, for real, you know? I've had some pretty good luck there, and I've had some not-so-great luck. What's the most you've ever won? I won 2300 a month ago on a 50-cent bet. Damn, all right, that's pretty good. Were they shocked that they actually had to pay somebody out? No, I've seen some people win a lot of money there, actually. I saw someone win 24000 before, but that's the most I've ever won, 2300 and I usually go about two or three times a month. I'll tell you, the last time I was there, it was on the 17th, and it was a Saturday night, Sunday morning, and I got an Uber at 2.41 a.m., and we pulled out of the casino, and we were in the turn lane, stopped, and we were hit by a drunk driver. Oh, man. Spent the night in Audubon Hospital, totaled both cars. It was a very violent wreck, and I'm amazed that none of us were more seriously injured. Fuck. Yeah, it was scary. I didn't win that night, but I still got pretty lucky, I guess. Yeah, I'd say that's a pretty big win, man. Well, the way that I knew the guy was drunk is because it happened super early in the morning. It was super cold out. So it took them like a half an hour to get the car doors open and for me to get out. And the other guy's car went into oncoming traffic. But they only had one ambulance, so they put us in the same ambulance And man, he was vomiting just pure liquor the whole time we were going to the hospital. Oh, God. Police reports said that he was doing approximately 55 miles an hour, and he never hit his brakes. Never hit his brakes. He blacked out at the wheel, and he hit the back right corner right where I'm sitting back here. So the rear passenger side of his vehicle. T-bone, I ask? No, we were stopped, and he rear-ended us. And it shot our car that way. And he went forward, ripped his front tire off, the axle, right in front of the casino. I said, I think if I were in your shoes and I'm sitting in that ambulance looking at him, they would probably have to pull me off of him. Like, I would probably lose my shit on that guy if I had to share an ambulance with the guy that just caused me to be in this fucking massive car accident, and now I got to share an ambulance with him. And not only that, it's not just being in the same room as this guy, it's having to watch him vomit in the fucking way, on the fucking way there. That would send me. (laughs) He said, yeah, I wasn't very happy with him. And I told the paramedic, this is a bunch of shit, man. What if he has COVID? So they told me just to put my mask on, and he was just laying there puking the whole way. Did it smell? Oh, God, it was horrible. Even with the mask. Even with the mask. Like, he already had a bunch of dried vomit down the front of him, so he had been puking before he even got in the car. Yeah, he's in jail now. (laughs) Probably not the first time that's happened for him. Yeah, that's what I figured. And I don't know if he had insurance or not. Uber's insurance picked up my medical bills and stuff. Oh, yeah. So you you weren't even driving. You were in an Uber, you said, right? Yeah. They've offered me like 3000 to settle already, which, I mean, look, I wasn't hurt badly, but I was injured, and I missed a week of work, and they've already paid for my lost wages, but I haven't hired a lawyer, and I don't plan on it. But I have talked to a friend who's a lawyer, and he said it's worth anywhere from two to $20,000. And I, I'd probably get like $10,000 just because a drunk driver hit us. And Kentucky has punitive damages. I said, I would take that up, man, because you never know what you can get until you just ask, right? Lesson learned, and I've just recouped lost wages. I'm like, 
dude, I just live this, you know? He said, yeah, that's what I was saying, you know? And look, I didn't win that night, but I might have got kind of lucky. And I said, think how many other nights you might potentially win if you bring back a 10 grand check over to Derby City Gaming. Right? That's true. That's true. I might get a car with it, but I don't know, man. My license is suspended, and I can get them back now, though, but I got to get that stuff in order. How come your license is suspended? Long story. It was a long suspension, too. I said, oh, I'd love to hear that story. (laughs) I'm like, give me more. Give me more. He said, oh, no. I mean, I was drunk driving. Um, on a suspended license and with no insurance. Damn. Yeah, it was a trifecta fuck. Well, you didn't total someone else's car, did you? No, but I did hit somebody else on the Kennedy Bridge and I spent the night in the hospital that night too. Lost my license for five years. So then you make these changes and you're sitting on the other end of it and and this happens to you now. And he goes... I tell you, man, we were lucky that we weren't killed that dude hit us so hard. The back window shattered. This window shattered. Man, I had glass in my mouth. Were your ears ringing? No, but the Uber driver, like, he didn't say anything for, like, two minutes. I'm like, dude, are you okay? And he just had his head down. And I could tell he was conscious, but he was, like, in shock, I guess. Well, besides being shaken up, was the Uber driver fucked up? No, not at all. Not at all. No injuries. The guy that hit us, I mean, he didn't even look hurt. His lip was busted a little, but he wasn't complaining about anything but his stomach. So I guess he really wasn't hurt either. But he hit us and and kept going maybe another quarter mile up the road missing a tire. God, he's lucky he didn't hit anybody else. Cars were dodging him because I could see the sparks flying from his car And I saw people dodging him because he went right into oncoming traffic. But we were super lucky. I felt very blessed that day. Yeah, man, I'm glad you're okay. Yeah. And then this is where I transition and pivot to maybe get another story when I've got more time. And I'm like, let's see if there's anything else here that I can get, right? So I asked this question. Is that the craziest thing that's ever happened to you? And it didn't lead to another crazy story, but he said, in an Uber, yes. (laughs) By far, by far. And I don't want to top that one. I said, yeah, we're not going to do that today. We're not going to do that today. So uh, (laughs) closing thoughts on this one. It's bullshit that Derby City Gaming can exist and people play the lottery every day in this state and we're home to the Kentucky fucking Derby but sports gambling and casinos are illegal. And what's worse is that I was reading the latest because a lot of times, you know, like I actually am, believe it or not, doing journalism when I make these stories and I write these stories and then there's something that somebody mentions to me and then I go through some research to be able to speak to this kind of stuff. So it's it's fun for me in that way, you know? It, It really is gonzo journalism made popular famously by Hunter S. Thompson. Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Good shit, baby. Um, What's worse is I was reading about these laws that Kentucky has because I'm like, okay, so there are a bunch of slots machines inside of Derby City Gaming. Oh, but actually they're not slot machines and there's just a bunch of these loopholes and how is horse racing gambling not like sports gambling when we uh, recognize horses with prestigious awards like 
this just doesn't really make a lot of sense, guys. And I was reading the latest, and it sounds like you know there was a there was legislation that was introduced last year, and it got tabled. And how like Republicans basically drug their feet and bitched, and of course, you know, didn't want to do the thing that makes a lot of sense and that's progressive and that's good for us. Of course, they're the curmudgeons, and. Uh, it sounds like it's going to be 2022 before this actually comes up again, because apparently in Kentucky, when it's an odd year, being 2021, um, the sessions are much shorter, and they only last 30 days spread over like three months. And because of that, and the fact that there was some Supreme Court ruling that changed the way that historical horse racing is legislated, so they're going to be really focused on that whole deal, and it seems really unlikely based on getting the historical horse racing thing kind of in, in, in order, and then the shorter session, because it's an odd-numbered year, it makes it really unlikely that they're going to get this sports gambling legislation done this year, which means it's probably going to be at least 2022 before it gets brought up again. Thank you, Republicans and religious conservatives. Best rapper alive. I pull up. And my man Moski hops in, and off we go. So, this is uh, uh, his real rapper name, okay? And because he mentioned his son's name and and everything, uh, I am using his real name, okay? And so I'll do this when I if I really use somebody's real name in certain instances like this, where it just makes sense because it, it's public information, uh, then it's fine, right? Um, but if you know, usually I'm respecting people's privacy, but only because he was plugging. Yeah, well, you know what? I'll get to it in a second. But my man goes by the name of Moski, hops in, off we go. And we start talking about what he does for a living. And he said he's got five kids. And I was said, damn, boy, you was getting busy. And he's in the back, like, laughing, like, <laughs> he had this really funny laugh. He would he would be talking and be like <laughs> So he's laughing at me kind of you know kind of be like damn boy like <laughs> And uh then he starts telling me about his kids and he said my oldest is 21 and he said he's probably like number 2 in the city as far as music I said music He said yeah he raps Okay what uh what's his name H Block Duke Yup, he the real deal. All right, I'm going to check him out. Who's number one? Tiller, Jack Harlow? Because uh, he said his son was number two, so I'm thinking like, okay, well, you know, who who does he have number one? Because obviously he's putting his son over Tiller and Jack Harlow, right? And uh, he said, nah, that's me. I said, oh, okay, okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> so my man Moski's number one, and then H-Block Duke, is number two. And listen, I'm not hating. I'm, I'm, I really am not trying to be a hater here. I'm just, you know, look, it just Tiller and Jack Harlow kind of like super, super big time. And, uh, you know, uh, but I guess ratings are all subjective and beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Let's just leave it at that. All right. But I swear to God, I'm not hating. All right. Um, I said, man, I, I really struggle with some of these new rappers because, you know, the guys that I grew up listening to, have either all kind of fallen off a little bit or they're just at different stages of their careers. Wayne fell off, Jeezy fell off, T.I. He said, man, I love T.I. Him and Jay-Z were my two favorites. 
Real talk, I was one of the biggest rappers here. Yep. 2004 to 2008. You were? Mm-hmm. Well, shit. Were you doing mixtapes, or what were you doing? Uh, we did albums, and most of our claim to fame came from concerts. Did you go on tour? Did you go on tour? I just opened up for anybody who came. If they was paying us, I was playing. Who was the biggest person that you opened for? Wayne. For real? Yeah, opened for Wayne twice. Juvie, T.I., Luda, anybody you can name that was hot at that time. Tony Yayo, 50 Cent, Scrappy, UTP. The list goes on and on. <laughs> well, shit, man. It's good to meet you. So where were they doing shows back then? Freedom Hall? Uh-uh. That's when Headliners was popping real hard. So at what point did you get out of the game and stop? Well, I ended up going to jail. And I dropped my album from the penitentiary. And it did really well. And I was doing street rapping when I had gone to jail. And I had two labels shopping me. And one of my homies was getting a deal. So it was looking real good. But then I got a 12-month lock, and I lost my buzz. Damn, man. It was ugly. What'd they get you for? Um, I had, uh, what was it that time? Uh, I think it was, like, bad checks or something like that. Man, I done did every kind of criminal crime you can think of. And now I'm working. But I done did it all, man. Or, you know, the main stuff. I done pimped. I done sold drugs. I did forgery. I done did it all. <laughs> I said, get it how you live it. He said, yeah, that's that's what I was saying. And people knew. That's what made me so good is because they knew what I was saying. They was like, he's for real. He really did that. <laughs> I seen it. There was always somebody that was there like, yeah, he, he did that. He really did that. But here's the thing, man. When you really live in what you're doing, it's probably going to catch up to you sooner or later. That's when, that's why when you get in, you got to get out. Get in the rap game. And I still wanted to make it real. And it was real. That's all it had to be. But I still wanted to prove something. And I didn't have nothing else to prove because I was already living it. I was being greedy. I was being greedy. Tried to take the fame to the next level instead of just sitting on it. Well, what did that stuff teach you about life or just about people? That people only love you when you're up and life is what you make it. And you can't be greedy. Life is all about greed. Greed, greed, greed is probably the biggest sin to me because overdoing anything, you can drink too much water and you'll throw up. You know what I'm saying? And water is great for you, but too much of anything is bad. So if a person can just not be greedy, you'll probably have what you need. And you might not have excess of what you need, but you're probably going to have what you need. Greed. Greed done got me every time. Every time I was up, and doing it to where I could be like, man, you know what? I should just lay back a little bit, lay back in the weeds. I'm like, nah, I'm ready to go hard. And then, cut, cut, cut. There go the handcuffs. Every time I break out in handcuffs, 
They was like hives for me or something. <laughs> and then he said when he got out that he really got out. And we talked about what he does now and the job because he is. He's he's uh, he's straight life civilian style, right? And he told me that he was working sanitation at a food company here in town. And he said, ain't nobody that's slinging is going to be working one of those jobs because you're either all in or you're all out. Nobody's going to want to scrub floors or pick up pig slop if they got drug money. I said, yeah, I, I can't imagine if you're stacking bands every week that you're really going to want to get up early and go to one of those jobs that you probably don't really fuck with. Right, right. And then, like, dude, my job is all Mexican people. Like, it's it's really weird. Because I'm thinking to the boss, like, man, I'm from the West End. All these kids in here that you could have working and you got all these foreigners in here when you could give some of these black guys a chance who really need jobs, who grew up around the same areas. Like, do you know how many ghosts are flying around here? It's at 34th and Magnolia. So that's Cotter Holmes and Southwick. Do you know how many ghosts are floating around there? What do you mean ghosts? Like actual ghosts or junkies? Because, you know, sometimes you hear a junkie called a zombie and I had never heard of somebody refer to anybody as as a ghost, like a junkie as a ghost, but I could I could I could see it totally making sense. So I just wanted to clarify that. I'm like, what do you mean ghosts? And he said, nah, like dead people. Like Cotter Holmes and Southwick, they was the worst projects in Louisville. That's where the Bloods and Crips started at. Southwick was Duval, they was the Bloods, and Cotter Holmes, they was the Crips. And then it just spread from there. That's why they tore them down. They was the first projects they tore down. And you got all these foreigners working here. Like, come on, man. You got to give people a chance. You know, most people are the products of their environment. I said, absolutely. I, I believe that. He said, like me, if I was raised out in Middletown or somewhere, I'd probably be a chemical engineer like I wanted. My IQ is 160. I was crazy smart at school. But shit, wasn't no girls giving up no pussy for that. Hey, look at these A's and B's. You gonna give me some? <laughs> they wanted dudes pulling up with the money and had drugs they were sitting on. So I went and got a bag, you know? But if I could have got some pussy from my report card, shit, I'd have been flooded. My socks would have been wet. <laughs> I said... Get this man some waiters. Let me get my waiters on. He said, flooded. <laughs> oh, I know that's a little bit crude for uh, my women listeners out there. I apologize, but uh, there's only one word that's off limits, in my opinion, and uh, that I won't repeat on here. And I think you probably can can uh, understand what that is. But listen, I, I, I these are not my words. Okay, and so I should not be judged for using them, uh, and uh, that's that's my defense. But here's the thing: here's the thing is, um, you know, like I was saying, doing journalism while I'm doing these stories, you know, I I was going back and reading about Cotter Holmes and Southwick, and then it led me down this like 30 minute rabbit hole. That's actually why I got the episode out a little later than normal. I was doing a lot more research on this episode. Um, and I went down, let's be honest, it was more like an an hour rabbit hole reading about the housing projects in Louisville and 
basically going as far back as to how Louisville at one point had like 26% slave population and was one of the biggest hubs, if not the biggest hub, for the slave trade. And it's no wonder why UPS has all of its stuff here. Louisville's like a really good jumping off point to the Deep South and to different areas in the Midwest. And so there was a lot of slaves that came here. And at one point, it was like 26% of the city was slave population. Well, after a while, um, a lot of those slaves ended up, you know, getting their own properties. And this is this is much later, right? But a lot of people settled around a place called Parkland. And there was kind of like Black Parkland and there was White Parkland. And White Parkland was home to these mansions. And Black Parkland eventually was home to housing projects that were built sometime in, uh, I don't know, the 40s or the 50s. And it was called Little Africa. And it was its own community. There was a there was a school there. And that's that's really how a lot of these places operated was, you know, you would kind of stay within your own. You would keep within your own and you would have somebody that was the doctor that everybody would go see. You would have somebody that was the barber that everybody would go see. You'd have somebody that ran the corner grocery store that everybody would go and shop at. And these communities, um, and, and you'll see this a lot, you know, within the Latino community or the Jewish communities, Italian communities, like there are certain melting pots um, of and pockets of people that, that kind of stay within their own. And actually, a lot of people that I've spoken with uh, who are older that talk about Louisville being desegregated and, and everything, like they, some of them didn't like it because they're like, man, you're going to be when, like, uh, for instance, I was speaking with somebody that can remember when Louisville was like before Brown versus Board of Education in 1954, right? And so then schools become desegregated and then there's this whole issue with busing and kids are being bused like hours from where they go to school usually in order to meet a quota. And and people didn't like that. So um, it was good and the country needed that because people needed to be able to go and, and shop where they wanted to shop or eat where they wanted to eat and, and things like that. And we needed assimilation, but it was also something that a lot of people pushed back on because they didn't want to leave you know, the school that they had been at, or they didn't want to have to like see shit change in the neighborhood. Like that was a real thing. And eventually um, they build these these homes in in Parkland. And then I was reading about the 1968 race riots, which, and it's just, it, you know, it's funny. Like history is so cyclical. I'm literally reading about something that happened in May and June, right when we were kind of in the midst of the Breonna Taylor protests here this past year in 2020. This is happening in 1968, and there was a confrontation with police officers and two black guys, and it it got violent, like the police officer uh, handling one of the guys, and then this was only like a few weeks or a few months after Martin Luther King had been assassinated. So tensions were very high. 1968 was was a very famous year for lots of riots and protests. And shit broke out in Louisville, got violent. There was something going on with um, once... Once uh, it, it was kind of like starting to happen and there were people who were gathering, there was like a rumor that went around that somebody was going to be flying in to speak at these demonstrations. But then there was another rumor flying around that white 
like the the white people um, who kind of like the, the the powers that be were delaying his flight so that he couldn't come in and get there. And then things turned violent. And we had the 1968 race riots right here in Louisville. And that really had a major effect on the way that Louisville then um, had kind of like white flight. Um, back into that point, the West End, there was still like whites living in the West End. And like I said, um, Parkland, part of Parkland had these mansions and had white people living there. But then after that, after the race riots in 1968, you had white flight. And, and for a lot of other reasons, um, white flight happened all over this country, right? But then you've got white people leaving and deserting the West End and moving into these subdivisions that are being built out in Middletown and in Oldham County and expanding outside of, you know, the metro area. And then you have um, these homes that are built, these projects homes, which are low-income housing and that sees a rise in poverty and crime and things just kind of started to deteriorate from there. I mean, they ended up tearing down those project homes because I was reading it was like it was like a million dollars a year that they were putting into like uh, renovating these places like the elevators were going bad in some of these places. And so they were like, hey, we're just going to tear these down and build something newer and hopefully that'll that'll help. Um but I just, I really went down this rabbit hole of like, damn, dude. Like, no, I had no idea um, kind of the origin of this stuff. And when he was telling me about Cotter Homes and Southwick, and and I was like, damn, that's, you know, look, I got a guy in the car telling me this is where the Bloods and Crips started in Louisville. Like, I don't, I find that interesting, you know? Like, I think that, I'm 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 always curious about origin stories. And it is, it's it's sad, Um and I, I, I bring a lot of that up because the comment that he makes is like, man, you know, this was ours. Like, this was really ours down here. And now you got all these Mexicans working. And, and, and like, that might, you know, I could see where somebody is like, oh, that's, that's kind of like racist, right? Like, if a white person said, man, I don't like this. All these black people are working here. That would definitely be labeled as racist. Um, racism can exist amongst um, not just white people, right? Okay, and so uh, when he's like, "Man, yeah, all these Mexicans are working here," like I, I can I can understand where he's you know why he's saying that and and where that comes from because he's saying like this used to be ours and we had the neighborhood and and this was this was our thing, and then you know. Listen, what happens is globalization happens, right? Uh, America begins to become the superpower that it does in the 80s. It starts needing to fund um, all of the jobs that make this country run, all the people who work at the Amazons and the McDonald's and the UPS and that facilitate the superpower that is America. Um, College-educated people aren't really taking a lot of those jobs. Those jobs are a lot of the times taken out of necessity because they're a means to an end. And then you have people that are like, man, look, I'm willing to do this job for cheaper because I'd rather live in America. Like people coming from Mexico and and people who are immigrating over here, uh, they are like, I would rather live here and maybe not have what society considers to be a great job or great pay, but I'm going to live here because it's better than how I was living back in this country or back where I was living here, you know? 
and and then that's where you get people who come in and, and neighborhoods turn over and it's happened in Asian communities, it's happened in Italian communities, it's happened in Jewish communities, it's happened in black communities, white communities, gay communities. It's just it's it's part of it's part of our history in America, you know? And maybe it's a good thing, maybe it's a bad thing, right? Uh, you got people who are coming in and granting new opportunities to work, and that's awesome. Uh, but you also have people that are like, man, like we should be getting those jobs, and and that's a tough thing too. So um, it was really good. I and and totally like this is the, you know this is the shit that really just fascinates me because I love I love the sociology of it. I I love kind of this like oh let me let me go back and research Cotter Holmes and Southwick and then let me go down this hour-long rabbit hole of all this other information and the history of Louisville and and like you know how it got its start and what it was and that stuff really fascinates me so um yeah that was that was that was a lot to go into there um but uh now it was a good ride and I ended up going onto YouTube and looking up some of his raps uh I found a mixtape that he was doing and it, it was okay, you know. I I can uh I can see why he maybe didn't blow up, uh but I did go back and and watch some of that stuff and uh some of his son stuff, H Block Duke, check him out on YouTube. I'll plug him. See what yourself what you think, you know? See what yourself what you think. You be the judge. So, that's all I got to say about that. Great parenting. This is a very short story. But this is a parenting tip, and this is the greatest tip that I've ever heard in my life. All right, this was this was great parenting. Okay, so I'm speaking with this woman, and she's telling me about different ways. She said she had some kids, and we were talking about her kids and talking about getting them to do things that they don't want to do. How do you incentivize your kids to clean up their room or work from home when they're doing the NTI thing? Like, how do you motivate a kid to actually want to sit there and do schoolwork at home when they got all their toys and their games and stuff like that? And she said, well, here's what I did. I had an old Xbox laying around in my garage, and it it was like my son's right before he got this other one, right? And so they're the same console, but this one didn't work for whatever reason. I don't know if he he spilled something on it or whatever, but like it wasn't working and I didn't throw it out. I just put it in the garage. So I take this Xbox and I bring it in the house. And when he was gone one day, I unplugged his Xbox and I hit it and I plugged in this Xbox and I took a baseball bat to that thing and I beat the shit out of it. And I had a bunch of old CDs laying around and I snapped them motherfuckers and I threw them around all over the Xbox. And when he got home, he came in to play his games and he hadn't been behaving real well in school and doing his homework and behaving around the house, back talking me a lot. So <laughs> he walks in and he sees all what he thinks are his games laying around the ground and he's got an Xbox that's just I mean, broken into pieces, and that boy hit his knees and just broke down crying, and I said, boy, you better get them grades, and you better keep behaving for me, or else I'm going to do this for real, and I pulled out his his Xbox, and he was like, ma, and he was hitting on her leg, and he was like, why would you do that? (laughs) That is... That is the most savage thing that I think I've ever heard as a parenting hack. I, I I just like the the ingenuity and the genius of that. 
is amazing, is second to none. So, like, parents, it also, I, I just, you know, listen, if you have an old iPad laying around the house and it doesn't work, just break that motherfucker. And if you have to prove a point to the kid or make something sink in, uh, give him the, hand him the broken iPad and just be like, like, hey, you shouldn't have done that, <laughs> you know, and just see what they do. Like, probably going to be a meltdown, you know, maybe not the best tactic for everybody, but when she told me this story, I was dying, man. I was like punching my hand like, oh my God, this is amazing. So that is a great parenting tip. HIV positive. So this was the first ride that I did on Sunday. And I'm doing something that I really enjoy doing. And I've done this once or twice before, but I'm calling this Sunday service. So this is going to be something that I, now that the football season's over, right, um, I have this extra time on Sundays. And it's really funny, man, because I am big into spirituality, right? I don't like church. My church is a Sunday sauna session with an episode of the Tim Ferriss Show and some soul music on the way home. I like to get out into nature on Sundays. I like to go hiking or go drive down the coast or into the mountains. That is church for me. That's when I feel most connected to nature and if there is a God, right, if there is some kind of a higher being, I like to believe optimistically that there is, that there is a point to all of this. And so when I'm out in nature and, and I'm hiking and I'm kind of like meditating, I, I feel closest to what I uh, uh, perceive to be a God-like figure or spirit or entity. Um, I'm big, I'm a big believer in the universe, I really believe in like universal powers and universal lessons and like the universal language of love and connectivity and that we are all connected, that all things and beings are part of something bigger. I totally believe in that, okay? But do I believe in the white Jesus Christ that we've been sold in America or do I believe in a God that would hate on different types of people just because um, Christians or Catholics or one denomination says, oh, well, we don't accept these people and they are not our God's children. It's like, well, then you don't have an inclusive God. I believe in a God that is inclusive of everybody and anybody, right? And just like I believe that there is a devil. And that's that's really, that's the reason that I, that I, that I probably believe in God the most is because I definitely believe there's a devil. I definitely believe there is evil in this world and you meet people that are just bound for a life of crime and raping and robbing and murdering and and just doing bad shit and fucking people over like that is evil. That is pure evil. And um I believe that there is a devil that that puts that into people that people are are kind of like born with this inherent evilness and and that people can also become evil through their life experiences but I believe that there is evil in the world that comes from a demonic place, and that would be the devil. And so if I believe in the devil, right, it would be stupid to just be like, well, there's just a devil and there's no God. Um, I don't know. I mean, Newton's law of attraction, right? There's got to be a balance. So there has to be some kind of a positive being up above, right? Um, but I don't I don't have the answers. These are just like these are just my thoughts, right? And and you can reject them or you can accept them and and for whatever they're worth. Um we'll never know, right? I'll never know until I pass away. And uh you won't either. So there really is no proof of it, right? Uh as we have learned through time and time again, 
History is written by the conquerors, and history has traditionally been written by white men. And so we have no idea. We have no idea of what's in the Bible are like people take the Bible as literal things that happened when sometimes I think they, they the stories in the Bible are intended to be stories that that shed light on and illuminate the way in which that humans should be intended to live and that the things this is how things should be done. I don't know that. Um, you know, there were people walking on water and you had the ark and all that. I don't, I don't know, man. I don't believe in fairy tales. I don't, I don't believe in fairy tales. So if it can't be proven, then I'm going to be very skeptical of it. But I do believe because there is evil in the world, inherently dangerous evil, that I believe that there is good in the world as well. And so, um, yeah, that's, that's kind of my bit on religion, um, I don't go to church anymore. Church became a very negative thing for me. Uh, a lot of times I would pull, get pulled out of church and get beaten while I was at church. So church became like traumatic for me. I didn't like going to Catholic masses um, as chronicled in my Christmas story 2017 when I'm passing out in church. I just don't like church. And I don't think church necessarily likes me either. So um, I, I, I do have like a Jesus calling that I, that I read not as often as I should, but sometimes, um, it has gotten me through some really tough times and I do believe in, in going and just like expressing gratitude to whatever you believe in, right? Whatever God or gods or thing that you believe in that gives you encouragement and wants to make you live a better life, whatever that is, great, great. Okay. I'm not here to judge what that is for you. And why it's different than my thing, but so so don't do that to me, okay? Uh, but my Sunday service typically looks like going up to the sauna. Off days are on Sundays, so go up to the sauna, get a little sweat in, listen to a podcast. Usually, it's something with Tim Ferriss and somebody that's talking about spirituality, personal growth, um, overcoming obstacles, stuff like that. So that's really um, kind of like when I feel I can center and, and kind of just I don't know, man. Go and learn. Go and learn. And, um, so yeah, that's, that's a lot. That's a lot. But I also really have enjoyed starting this thing with Sunday service. So what I'll do is, um, I'll go out and drive on a Sunday and it was like, I, the only time that I can remember doing this was several months ago. And that was when I met the woman who was on her way to an AA meeting and I missed the turn, and we were talking about addiction and new beginnings, and she, I, I'll never forget this quote she said, I, you know, I broke my life so bad I thought it could never be fixed, but it did, and I got sober, and now I've got an awesome job, and I never thought any of this was possible for me, and I really, I dropped her off at this AA meeting once we finally made it there, right, and she was like, you know, I truly believe this was meant to be. I was supposed to get you as a driver, and you were supposed to miss that turn. And I've really enjoyed doing this. And that was a really powerful and cool moment for me because I I just sort of, hey, keep going. You know, keep going with it. Keep rocking it. And she got out, and and she was swelling with pride. She walked into that AA meeting, and, uh, you know, I'll pro- I, maybe I'll never see her again. But that kind of shit, it, it makes me believe that there is a true kind of bigger picture that if you continue to do things the right way and, and do right by people that eventually you'll continue to get closer and closer to that and hopefully one day you'll fully realize it and you can actualize it and then act on it but until that point we're just all kind of floating around wondering right but uh that Sunday was there was was that was a really good that was a really really good one and so I said you know 
I think I should do this more often. I think maybe this is God telling me do this more often, right? You never know. And I'm going to call it Sunday service. And since last Sunday was A, the first Sunday that I had my car back, and B, the first Sunday that there wasn't any NFL playoff games, I decided to go ahead and step out for a little Sunday service. So I toss on Sam Cooke, Portrait of a Legend, and I'm riding around, because I always love to listen to soul music when I'm doing this kind of stuff, right? I'm riding around, and I scoop up a friend that we're going to call Ryan, and I say to him, what are you getting into this week? Same thing I've been doing for the last year, not catching coronavirus and staying at home. That's cool. Are you working right now? No, and I haven't been able to get unemployment. It's been fantastic. Is that your only source of income? Well, I'm an artist and a freelance writer and a hustler, so like I make shit happen. So like I'm making it, but I'm just not comfortable. <laughs> Who is? Right? Over the last year at least, yeah, who has been? I still don't have health insurance, so, you know, I feel that. I only have health insurance because the government decided it would be cheaper to keep me alive and pay for my premium than it would to let me die. Because I'm immunocompromised. So they're just like, oh, no, 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 no. We'll pay for you so that you don't cost us tax dollars when you go to the emergency room and die. I said, what's your deficiency in your immune system? Oh, I'm HIV positive. Yeah. It killed my grandpa and my aunt. It's a family thing. (laughs) He laughs. Uh, Passed down? You know, this shows my ignorance. Because sometimes mothers can give HIV to children, so I didn't know if it was just something that, like, ran in the family and it got, you know. Uh, So I said passed down? Kind of an ignorant question in retrospect because his answer right here uh, proves that point. He said, no, it was a joke. You don't really pass it down. Oh, (laughs) Okay, I was like, uh, you know, like, I, I don't know, you know. He said, no, 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 you're fine. Um, Yeah, I contracted HIV years ago, and I just take a pill a day, and I can't transmit it. So when you take your medication on a daily basis, you're what's called undetectable. And undetectable means untransmittable. So I can't give the virus to anyone. So think of HIV medication as birth control for your immune system. So it prevents me from death the same way it prevents women from having babies. And then there's also some pills you can take where if you live in any of the high-risk group populations that have exposure to HIV, you'll take what's called PrEP, which is pre-exposure prophylactics. And it's a pill a day, and it prevents the transmission of HIV. And then there's also one called PEP, post-exposure prophylactics. And that's kind of like the plan B for your immune system. So if you've been exposed to HIV within 72 hours, you can go to the ER and take a regimen of pills that will prevent HIV from setting into your system. Damn. Okay. So are you comfortable talking about how you got it? Because I'm curious. I've never met anybody that's had HIV He said, oh, you probably have. They probably just didn't tell anybody. I said, oh, okay, yeah, definitely, definitely, right? He said, um, it's like super, I don't know how I got it. And I've done a bunch of therapy on it. I'll never know how I got it. My aunt got it from her husband, who she had been married to for 20 years, who cheated on her. And my grandpa died because he used needles. You know what I mean? So there's so many different ways to get it. 
and knowing doesn't really do anything to help me heal. All I know is that like now, it's my responsibility to be educated and healthy and pass that information along. Sure. Does the not knowing bug you at all? Or did it? No, because it doesn't matter. What difference would it make in my life to know who did it? Especially when you consider all the different things that come along with HIV and the stigma and the emotional turmoil, the trauma that I think all of the gay community still deals with today. Sure. An entire generation of men being wiped out. Um, when I go to a gay bar, there are people that are under 40 and then there are 60 and over. There's not a whole lot of people between 40 and 60 because they're all dead. That was like the 80s and 90s, right? Mm-hmm. When straight folks had their sexual revolution, they got the summer of love. When we had a sexual revolution, we got HIV and a government that told us they didn't care if we died. Man. So, yeah, I'm just super vocal about it. Very comfortable talking about it. I said, that's good. I'm glad that you are because there needs to be people like that. You know, you speak for a lot of people that can no longer do that or maybe don't feel comfortable doing that or aren't ready to do that yet. But it's really important that you continue to do that and speak openly and honestly about it. And if, because if not, people are just going to have these perceptions about it and usually they're wrong. Yeah. Well, and the thing is, I can guarantee you if you talk to almost any gay man that isn't Gen Z, Gen Z is wild. They're like just wiling out, doing like everything they want to do, and I love it. But everyone else is like jaded and bitter. <laughs> um, and I've been laughing since he started talking about Gen Z, and so now he's laughing saying jaded and bitter, and I say their youth is gone. That's why they're jaded and bitter. Their youth is gone. He said, yeah, yeah, pretty much, yeah. Gen Z still has their youth. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But like... When you come out as gay, your first thought is, okay, so now I'm going to die of AIDS. That was like one of the, my first thoughts. And in places like Kentucky, they don't do sex ed for gay kids, which adds to people getting HIV. People being unwilling to teach gay kids how to have gay sex because it's like taboo, I guess, kills people on a daily basis. Like if I could learn how to put a condom on a banana... I could learn about safe anal sex as a person. But, uh, yeah, we'll get there. Gen Z is just rocking the world right now. I love them. They don't care about gender or sexuality or politics. They're just actively assholes, and it's really admirable. Yeah, so I'm I'm a pretty young millennial, but Gen Z is both the guys and the girls. It's just, he says, it's wild. Yeah, man, they're on another level. And he said, and I feel so old because I'm like, I don't know what you mean, but I'm so glad that you have a language for it. <laughs> Was it difficult telling your family and friends that you had contracted HIV? The first thing I thought when I had HIV, I was in a really unique situation. I was homeless at the time, and I found out in an emergency room, and I asked them for a pamphlet, something, anything, and they kicked me out. I wasn't really close with my family at the time. I almost died because I couldn't get the meds because I didn't have an ID, so I couldn't get insurance, so I couldn't get medication. But my story is really unique, and it happened in Southern California, which is wild, but most people are able to get on medication and get it together. 
but thank you for coming to my TED Talks. And and by this time, I was pulling up, and, and that's how he signed up. And I said, dude, yeah, man, I do this all day long, and I have a podcast about the people that I meet and the stories that we share, and I get it. And it's it's all totally anonymous, so I'm not here to out anybody. Rad. But this conversation will probably go on the podcast. He says, cool. Will you do me a favor and look up Queer Kentucky? It's a local publication that's geared towards informing the queer community about how to be safe and be fun. Cool. Yeah, I got you. So um, if you guys go to QueerKentucky.com, you will find articles and columns by contributors. They offer diversity, equity, and inclusion training and workshops to businesses. Uh, they've also got some swaggy merch. And you can also make donations if you like. If you know anybody that's gay, if you support LGBTQ rights, um, go and check out their website and you can make a donation. And that would be really awesome. But that was a really great conversation. And thinking about what he said, I just want to circle back to that for a minute because it almost makes me, it, it gets me emotional kind of thinking about it. Um, what a fucking quote, man. When straight folks had their sexual revolution, they got the summer of love. When we had our sexual revolution, we got HIV and a government that told us they didn't care if we died. And so again, went down this big rabbit hole. But basically, Ronald Reagan didn't publicly mention AIDS until September 1985, four years after the crisis had begun and after 12,000 Americans had already died from it. But by that point, it was already a full-blown epidemic. But for years, the federal government was silent about this emerging issue and they neglected to fund any meaningful research. And it wasn't until the end of 1987 that the United States began taking steps to raise AIDS awareness. And by then, about 47,000 people had already been infected with HIV in the U.S. By 1995, AIDS was the single greatest killer of men ages 25 to 44 in America. And today... There are currently 37 million people living with HIV around the world. So think about going places. Think about the people that you might have grown up with, going to nightclubs, going and doing things on the weekends. If you're in that, uh, if you're in the gay community, you know, you're hanging out probably with a lot of gays, right? And um, just thinking about what it would be like to be like, wow, 20 years of people absolutely vanished from the face of this earth because we had a old, stuffy, conservative, Republican, moralistic president that refused to acknowledge the existence of this disease. And it was almost easier for him to do that because it's like, you know, listen, not my attitude, but I'm, I'm just thinking about the types of people that wouldn't care about that. They'd be like, good, let it take them all out. Take away all the gays. There was there was churches and these massive attempts to pray the gay away. And when AIDS came along, they thought that was like the the, the they called it the gay plague, and they they were like happy about it, thinking that it's an abomination and that's not how we were created. And that's all such bullshit, dude. That's all such bullshit. It took you years and years and years to acknowledge the fact that this was happening and and that there were people dying, people's brothers, people's dads, people's uncles, sons, um, and, and women as well, people's sisters, people's moms, people's aunts, grandmas, like a lot of people in the gay community, what he said, 
There's people who are below 40, and there's people who are over 60. That's wild, and that's really fucking sad. That's really fucking sad. And I just, that quote just hit me so deep, and it just, it really just stuck with me, like, like damn, like that's 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 real as fuck. That's real as fuck. When when straight people had their sexual revolution, they had the summer of love, nineteen sixty nine, and that was celebrated. And Woodstock culture and people taking LSD and dancing in the rain, like that was that was a thing. And when gay people had their sexual revolution, they got HIV and a government that failed to acknowledge them until thousands were dead. And then still really kind of drop the ball along the way. And I think it's funny. I, I think it's I think it's really funny. Um, not to draw comparison between you know the AIDS epidemic and coronavirus epidemic and, and pandemic because they're two totally different things. But it is funny that that we have uh, at both times uh, an older Republican president, that refused to acknowledge the existence of something going on that put people's lives and health in danger and refused to acknowledge it until it was largely too late and could have done more, could have done so much more. So I think that's really interesting. I think it's a really interesting parallel. I don't think the two are correlated, and you can draw from that your own conclusions in which you wish, but I I, I just, you know, that's why... <laughs> Listen, you guys probably think I'm the biggest liberal ever. Um, I don't know, man. Like, Democrats, they, like, I don't know. The left, much more progressive on this stuff. Much more willing to adopt science and facts. And much more willing to say, hey, all of these people do matter. Like, black lives matter. And Latino lives matter. And queer lives matter. And, like, we should maybe do more for those people. Right? That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. Okay. That is it for me. Um, I have an interview dropping this Friday. Sean Bowdy, my man, uh, friend, and former journalist from school. We had classes together, and now he's at Wave 3 News. So he's going to take us inside the newsroom and tell us what it's been like covering the Breonna Taylor case and the protests over the summer, COVID-19, and being a reporter during a national quarantine, working in, quote, the media and during the Trump administration and watching these events unfold during the insurrection in Washington, D.C. Wild times, man. And it's really good stuff. So that's going to drop on Friday. And then next week, I will be back with more Uber Stories. Uber Stories Part 22. Follow me on TikTok at BennyTomp18. I can't believe I'm saying that. I know, but I'm there now, baby. Was good. Uh, Twitter, Instagram at BennyTomp18. The Facebook show page is at Real Talk WBennyT. And leave me, please, just take two seconds out of your day. I'd be pleased. It doesn't even have to be long. Just leave me a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. And I appreciate the fuck out of you, my friends. And I hope that you will continue to take this ride with me and come along for this journey. That's all I got. I'm Ben Tompkins. That's Real Talk.